Hello, and welcome to American History Remix. I am Will Schneider. And I'm Lindsay Smith. Thank you to all of our listeners and supporters who have been growing with us. We just wrapped volume two. Will, how do you feel when you hear those words? Tired. Very tired. This was a lot of work. Agreed. It was a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun, too, and we're proud of what we produced. So since we finished Volume 2, we're doing another Q&A episode. That's right. We asked for questions, and you sent in questions, and now we are going to answer them. So Lindsay and I will take turns asking each other the questions that you, our listeners, sent in. But before that, Lindsay, I have a question for you. And that is, what took so long? Why was there such a big gap between Volumes 1 and 2? Very good question, Will. And let's see, for context, Volume 1 was released in the fall of 2020, and Volume 2 was released in the fall of 2022. So why two years in between? Well, we can blame a lot on the pandemic if we want to, so there's that. But I did move to another state during like the last period of volume one. So I moved to a new state, had to start a new job, and Will got more responsibility at his job. And Yeah, I have the same job, but they keep giving me more work, which is awesome. I like that, but it keeps me very busy. Yes, and other things keep you busy too, huh, Will? Yeah, so my wife and I have two daughters. When we released volume one, we only had one daughter, and our second daughter was born about a month before we released volume two, which was very stressful and busy. So all summer long, I was frantically trying to record volume two before there was a newborn in the house. And then once she was born, we were editing the audio, and I was trying to edit audio in between crying sessions of a newborn, and that was challenging and partly why I am so tired. But yeah, this was this was a long and difficult process to get volume two out. Yeah, definitely. But I feel like the biggest reason why it took so long is because there are so many moving pieces, and this really is not a two-person project. No, this is not. There's two of us that are doing the content for the podcast. We have some help with some other pieces, Lauren Rico is currently developing teaching curriculum based on our podcast, and we're working with her on that. And if we have a secret weapon on this project, it's our friend Josh Jones, who does the final audio editing and mixing in the music. But as far as producing the content, from research to writing the scripts to editing and all of that, it's really just you and I. We're doing the work of four or five people as a two-person team. At least. So that's very, very difficult. And each episode is a ton of work to produce. Yes. So we are so passionate about the topics, the subjects of each episode that we keep working on it because we love what we're doing. But to make a podcast successful, you'd need things like social media and a website. And yeah, you had to learn how to do website design. Yeah. (laughs) So things like that take our attention away from actually writing the scripts. Yeah. So that's part of why it took so long. And while it's wonderful to learn new skills, it really really comes down to it. We just we just really want to read and write and talk about history. And right. So, if there's anyone out there who wants to join our team, we yeah. uh, we don't mind having that conversation. Yeah, please, <laughs> someone come help us for the love of God. <laughs> okay. All right. So, yes. What about another question, Will? 
one of our listeners asked, what about a little bit more about bio information? Who are my hosts and what's going on in their lives? Yeah. So we mentioned this a little bit in actually our first Q&A episode, which we did like two years ago now. But Lindsay, you and I met at grad school in uh, Portland State University. We're both in the same cohort. And that's where we got our, uh, we both have MAs in history. Mm-hmm. And so we met there and we have different specialties, which I think kind of helps the project. So I specialize in, it's called the social and intellectual history of the United States, which means I specialize in culture and ideas You have a different specialty. You specialize in trees or plants or something? Yeah, very, very similar to that. (laughs) I specialize in environmental history. And I did a second track where I learned how to do public history, which this project is an example of public history. But yes, environmental history is what I specialize in. And that is essentially taking a look at history with the physical environment in mind and the interactions between it and the humans involved in the area, involved in the story. So a good, very good example would be from this volume, our episode on early urbanization. Yeah, that was a quintessential Lindsay episode. Yes. Though though what's interesting is we have these different specialties, which kind of helps the project because we have different areas of expertise and they kind of complement each other. But as we keep working on it, your interests are influencing mine. The more work I do, the more I'm asking kind of the questions of an environmental historian, just looking at how people interact or influenced by the world around them. So that's that's your influence on me. You're you're changing <laughs> my my historical specialty. Right. And my my side of things, I'm asking more evolution of ideas, questions, and social history, and and even political history, which is something that I, I admittedly kind of avoided for a long time. But yeah, whenever I propose a political history idea, you're usually reluctant to take it. You're like, okay, I guess we should talk about politics. But I see your interest in that growing as well. I really like to focus in on the day-to-day and how people live their lives from what food they eat and and what happens to their sewage and how do they keep their homes clean and how they interact with in the family. But it grows much bigger than that. And especially like I said with the earlier organization episode, you know, politics has a huge hand in how the environment is being affected by humans and vice versa. So it's yeah, as I think I think one of the things you're seeing in this podcast as it as it grows and develops is our specialties and areas of interest kind of interacting. Yeah, um, we're kind of we keep looking at the the interchange between kind of these big cultural social ideas and kind of daily lives of people. Yeah, which is fun. So it's great. Yeah, you're listening to us grow as historians, and I think that's fun too. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening. <laughs> okay, so another question we got was, what are other history podcasts, movies, etc. that you recommend? I always, always recommend Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. You got to be prepared for like six hour long episodes, but if you want to dig in, he's a great storyteller and they're well researched. Yeah, if you think our episodes are long. Right. They're, <laughs> they're very well researched and presented so well. So I just always and I like the stuff podcast like stuff you missed in history class and stuff you should know just because they bring up a lot of really cool topics and at least give you introductions to them so you can go exploring on your own. 
Okay, so it's not like a history podcast or documentary or anything like that, but because we were working on the antebellum era, the era kind of before the Civil War, throughout this volume, I kept going back and watching Gangs of New York, Mm -hmm. the movie by Martin Scorsese. He takes liberties in that movie. He moves events around and certain things that happened in the, you know, 1840s are happening during the Civil War in his movie. So it's not totally historically accurate. And I don't want to pretend that it is. But the world that Scorsese created in that movie feels so immersive and detailed and rich. So there's there are times I was writing the scripts for this volume and I would just pause and I'd go watch scenes from that movie on YouTube and then come right back. It just helped me like get in the mood mm-hmm. for working on material from this era. So if you're interested in kind of a fictionalized version of events, I would check out Gangs in New York. Definitely. All right. Another question. If you could meet someone from the time period covered, who would it be and why? Yes. Let's see. I think I have two answers. I can meet anyone from the time period we covered in volume two. I would say Henry Clay. Henry Clay is just fascinating to me. He's one of the most important politicians we've ever had in America who was never president, but he did everything else but be president. And he was also Abraham Lincoln's political role model. Uh, Lincoln was a great admirer of Clay. You can go look at Henry Clay's life, and then you kind of see his influence on Lincoln on certain policies and just his thinking on different subjects and see how Lincoln kind of started with Clay's thoughts and then kind of evolved on his own. But Henry Clay was doing everything. He's literally everywhere in this era. He helped lead the United States into the War of 1812. He was one of the congressmen calling for that. He was a Speaker of the House. He negotiated and kind of brokered the deal for the Missouri Compromise. He helped John Quincy Adams win the election. He was kind of the central figure of the Whig Party, which formed an opposition to Andrew Jackson. He ran for president like four times and lost every single one of them. (laughs) He resolved the nullification crisis when South Carolina tried to invalidate federal law. And then he negotiated the Compromise of 1850, just like every major piece of legislation or important political event from this era, Clay's involved somehow. He was also a bit, from what I've read, not every source says this, but some of the sources I've read say he was a bit of a ladies' man. Uh, He was the life of the party. Uh, He seemed to be charming and fun. So I kind of just want to go meet Henry Clay and just see what he was all about. And my second answer, if I could meet two, is I would go back and meet Andrew Jackson, but more mostly just to kind of punch him in the face. Yeah, step on its toe real hard. Yeah, definitely. But what about you? (laughs) Well, Edgar Allan Poe. Because why not? The conversation. That's a great answer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the conversation would be anything but boring. So, yeah. I'd, I'd like to just let him talk and just what goes on in that mind, you know? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> I would want to meet Poe too. That's a good So, if I, have a, if I had a third, I would say Ed Carlin Poe. <laughs> Will's so greedy. <laughs> yeah, right. All right. Let's do the next question. Lindsay. What would you like most and least about living in the time period covered in volume two? I say I would like most the idea that like you're at the beginning, the cusp of something great, which is like America, the United States itself, what could be great, but what could also fall apart in seconds. So like the possibilities are endless, technology's changing, 
transportation and communication, people are getting closer together and popular culture is just emerging into something that hasn't been seen before. So that's really fun and exciting. What I would like least about living in the time period is no indoor plumbing (laughs) or electricity. Um, Being a woman is hard. And if I had been born in the same place I was born in here, which is in Georgia, then I would have had extra issues in the 1860s. Yeah, you'd have had your hands full if you were in Georgia. All right. How about you, Will? Yeah. So this is actually a really funny thing to think about because of all the eras in American history, the, the antebellum era is the era that reminds me the most of the present. There are other things you see similarities in in different eras, and it's it's not the only one where there's things that resonate by any means. But but in this volume, we covered the twin revolutions. We had that two-part episode with the revolutions in technology, which transformed how people live their lives, revolutions in uh, communication and transportation. And those technological revolutions kind of changed work. They changed family. They changed politics. They changed entertainment, etc. And it's a, it's a wild time to live through and kind of see how people are grappling with that change. And I actually think, and this is a personal opinion, I can't like prove this, but I think we're probably living through something similar right now. So they lived through the communication and transportation revolutions. And I think we're living through a digital revolution where There was this new technology like the internet and smartphones and social media, et cetera, that are just transforming everything about society very, very quickly. And they're changing how we work because we can work remotely. They're changing the economy again because they're changing how we can work. They're also creating these giant tech companies that are dominating the economy. They're changing entertainment and popular culture by letting us stream media from anywhere we want, anywhere in the world at any time. They're changing relationships through like dating apps. And all of these things can feel very unsteady. feels like life is changing quickly. Like politics are especially divisive, kind of like they were in this era. The political parties are evolving. Just like in the antebellum era, there are new ideas about gender and reactions to those ideas. And so I think we're living through something kind of similar. And it's both exhilarating and exhausting. But that's my view. I don't know if you feel the same way, Lindsay. No, I I definitely do see the similarities. And so I can understand where you're coming from there. I mean, just like the the communes that you talked about in episode two of Twin Revolutions makes you think of like the 1960s, you know. So like it's really a very fascinating era that unfortunately just gets overlooked and overshadowed by the Civil War and the Industrial Revolution in the latter part of the century. Mm -hmm. Okay, next question. Which pivotal event slash turning point in the time period covered, if gone the other way, would have most shaped the present besides the Civil War? Okay, so this is really interesting. This is what we'd call an ahistorical question, because it's a question about a history that didn't happen. And so we can't say anything definitively, but it's you can have really interesting kind of thought experiments. And so I am going to go back to my previous answer. I think about Henry Clay. What if Henry Clay had won the election of 1844 instead of Polk? 
and we therefore could have avoided the Mexican-American War. What would that have done? Because we, as we see in that Westward Expansion episode, it's the expansion of the United States that kind of puts it on the path towards the Civil War. Would slavery expand into the West? That's kind of what, that was the spark that really started the fighting between the North and the South. There probably would have been some kind of confrontation between the two sides either way, but as it turned out, it was about westward expansion and slavery in those territories. So what if we didn't get the territory we got from the Mexican-American War? We didn't get the American Southwest and Texas and California. Would that have changed anything? There's also some thought, some historians have kind of noted that if Henry Clay had won really any of the uh, presidential elections in which he ran, what would that have done to the economy? Because Clay was, he, he favored a diversified economy. He, he really liked the market revolution. So he wanted a diversified economy rather than an, an agrarian-based economy. And if his policies had been enacted, then some of the, perhaps the border states on the upper south would have been kind of drawn into that market economy a little more. So, you know, Kentucky, Tennessee, places like that, maybe even Virginia, And so would those states have then joined the Confederacy if slavery wasn't as important to the economy? So even if there had been a civil war, the balance of power might have looked very differently. Again, these are all questions. I have no idea what things would have looked like, but it was those moments I look back at and I really wonder what could have happened. Right. And I don't know, you can ask a ton of different questions, but kind of like on the similar vein, because... This era is heavily influenced by westward expansion. So Mm -hmm. what if gold was discovered in California before Mexico signed the territory over to the U.S.? Yes. Well, as as we noted in our episode, unfortunately, the Mexicans were unaware that gold had been discovered in California and the treaty was signed. Just a few weeks off. Yeah, just a few weeks off. And and we had the, the major gold rush that really, without it, what would the West Coast have even looked like? Another question would be like, well, what if it was still Mexican territory? What would the United States look like right now? You know? Yeah, it could have been very, very different. So all of those moments, like uh, the Civil War is the obvious one. Well, what if the Confederacy had won? But there's all these moments kind of leading up to the Civil War, kind of touching on slavery, westward expansion, the economies, all of that. So things could have looked very differently. Maybe Mexico, whole, if if they held on to California and they had the gold rush, I don't know what would have happened, uh, but it'd be a very different situation. Mm-hmm, definitely. All right. Next question. So this is a different one. This isn't quite on the uh, antebellum era. This is ahistorical in the sense that it's about something that hasn't happened at all yet. But the question is, how do you think future historians will look at today's time period? What sources will they look to? That's interesting. I would say the most obvious is digital sources, but if we're talking about, like, post-apocalyptic historians, (laughs) uh, (laughs) I would have to say they'd have to dig us out. That is getting really ahistorical. (laughs) All right, I'm I'm going for it. uh, They'd have to dig us out of the rubble like more recent humans got dug out, like the Pompeians or something. (laughs) But I also feel like if digital resources are lost to future historians— they're not able to open files and view them and read them and whatnot, then they would have to rely heavily on like archaeology and geology, things of that nature. Like historians of cultures with limited written resources have to do now. Yeah, that's what we do with like ancient Greece or Rome or places like that. There's obviously written sources, but there's archaeological evidence, which helps significantly. Right. 
Native American groups as well. But though this is just all speculation on my part, but it's a super fun question to contemplate, though. All is kind of sad also to think about, but it makes you kind of think about what are you leaving behind? And that also stirs up a lot of emotions, you know? Yeah, it does. I think of like, so I teach history. That's my job when I'm not doing the podcast. And I think like eventually there's going to be a textbook chapter on the era we're currently living through. And it's going to be fascinating, like to teach this with a little more perspective, a little more distance. Because in the last, I don't know, a few years, we've had the 2016 election, the COVID pandemic, the January 6th insurrection. Like it's going to be really interesting to teach these events later on when we're not living through them. I don't know. That'll be that'll be really interesting to live through. I imagine a little it'll be a little bit like teaching through like teaching about the 60s or something like that when there's just all sorts of kind of upheaval of all kinds and all sorts of new challenges facing facing the nation. All right. Next question. This is a little longer question. All right. In the B-side episode about families in the Civil War, you discuss fiction from the time that dealt with the war. I remember as a kid in school reading some captivating books on the subject, and of course we have all heard of Gone with the Wind. As an adult, I have come to enjoy historical fiction. Could you suggest some reading material you find interesting about or from this time? Great question. I really like that. So personally, I don't read a lot of historical fiction. If I'm not reading history, I'm usually reading like science fiction and fantasy. <laughs> um, so historical fiction, uh, I'm not an expert on that. But if you want to understand or get the feel of a certain time period, I really like going back and reading literature from that era. So as we were working on this volume, I actually a few times would go and just kind of read Walt Whitman poetry. If you like poetry, I, I'd recommend his stuff. It's, it's funny because I actually don't, care for his poetry all that much. I think it's fine, but I don't, it doesn't speak to me like other poetry does, but I found it really helpful just to get in the mood and just get kind of like a feel for the time period we were writing about the antebellum era and just, I don't know, getting in the vibe or something like that, almost like listening to music just kind of sets a mood. So I'd go read poems from his leaves of grass collection to kind of help me get into the zone when I was writing on this era. There's a lot of other great writing from this time period you could check out. The Transcendentalists are really interesting. We already mentioned Edgar Allan Poe. There's abolitionist material as well. But yeah, that's a great way to kind of get into get into an era and get familiar with an era, how people think and how they speak, their word choices, their, their phrases, how they kind of look at the world. It's a great thing to do if you're trying to understand an era. What about you, Lindsay? Well, I read more nonfiction than fiction. But there is one historical fiction, I guess you can call it that, that I read years ago that I, I thought very captivating, very good imagery, and that was The Historian by Elizabeth Kostova. And it's kind of like a Vlad the Impaler meets a woman in the future who has, I don't know, it's, it's fun. It's like a gothic novel. But as far as like of the period, and specifically relating to uh, American history, there are so many wonderful examples from Amy Merrill Taylor's book, Divided Families, that we cite in our episode, Families in the Civil War. But one of those that she mentions, I actually found a copy on the internet through the digital library from Cornell University. It's 
free for anybody to access it. So I'll include the link in our episode description. But the name of it, it comes from 1862, and it's called Salon or The Rebellion of 61, A Domestic and Political Tragedy. And it's ridiculous. (laughs) That's a good subtitle. (laughs) Yes. Two fictional characters are thwarted from marrying while their fathers, who are Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis, (laughs) fight in a war. And I'm telling you, the characters alone are like, it's worth checking out. Like I said, I, I found... A full copy. So this is like Romeo and Juliet set during the Civil oh, War? Oh, yeah. It, it kind of is. It really <laughs> is. And it does. That's awesome. You know, like in our B-side, we kind of talk about, you know, the, there's the question between national loyalty and family loyalty. Yeah. Well, actually, in the entire episode, that's something we talk about. And this is yeah. definitely in like a dramatic and very entertaining way, putting it, putting those questions up for the readers. How does this story end? I'm curious now. Do they do they die like Romeo and Juliet or? Uh, no spoilers, Will. Oh, I'm okay. Gonna, okay, so our <laughs> <laughs> so our listeners, if you would like to read this story, you can find it through Cornell University's digital library for free, and I have the link I will share with you. But that's just one example I just thought was very entertaining. That sounds really entertaining. <laughs> I didn't read that one. I should go read that now. Yeah, it's not very long. Okay. Next question. Ooh, this one comes from my friend Brian. Brian wants to know, was extending Aaron Rodgers last offseason a mistake and should they trade him this offseason? This is obviously about the Green Bay Packers. Lindsay, what do you think? It's a very good question, Will. I would have to say, based on my knowledge of Aaron Rodgers, he is a very good looking man. So extending his contract (laughs) has to be a good idea, right? That that's all I know about it. That's that's a hundred percent of your knowledge on Aaron Rodgers and the Packers. Oh, he plays football. Yes. Yes. Do you know what position he plays? No. Oh, he's the quarterback. Oh, good for him. It's the most important position. Yeah, good for him. So this is a great question. I understood keeping Rodgers after last offseason and extending and signing him to that extension. In hindsight, obviously that didn't pay off this year. Packers had a losing record. They lost. They didn't make it to the playoffs the first time under head coach Matt LaFleur. So in hindsight, yeah, they probably should have traded him because there's a chance we're recording this in early February. He hasn't decided what he's going to do this offseason, but there's a chance he retires. There's a chance he comes back as a Packer. There's a chance they trade him. I think it's time to move on from Aaron Rodgers. I think it's time to turn to Jordan Love, just like it was hard to turn from Brett Favre to Aaron Rodgers. That time had come. I think we're at that point in Rodgers' career now. And we're at that point in this episode. Yeah, we're at the point in the episode. <laughs> but we'll probably get something in return for trading Rodgers, but it, his the picks you could get back in return, the draft picks you could have gotten last offseason when he's coming off back-to-back MVP seasons, that would have been prime opportunity. I don't know how many first-round picks we could have gotten. But now we'll probably get a lot less if I say we as in Green Bay Packers. Though I am a Packer owner. I am a, a, I own a minority share in the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> so I guess I can say we. But yeah, we probably should have traded him last offseason. So that's a, that's a great question, Brian. Thank you. Thank you for sending in Packer questions every two years when we do a Q&A episode. Yes, thank you, Brian. He did that last time. He, he asked about <laughs> Aaron Rodgers two years ago. So thanks, Brian. <laughs> okay, but seriously, another question that's going to kind of be a downer. Here we go. When you discussed the killing of dogs on your early urbanization B-side, I was disturbed but intrigued. 
You could have done a whole episode on that. It would have been rough, but it's like watching a train wreck in that it's hard to look away. Could you give me a starting point to look into that more? Absolutely not. We already talked about killing dogs for too long. I didn't want to talk about it in the B-side. I'm glad we didn't cover it in early urbanization. So, no, I have no more information about killing dogs. Although I would suggest starting at Taming Manhattan by Catherine McNuor. This book we cited for our episode on early urbanization. Uh, She does talk about the mad dogs, and that's where we got our story from. Mm -hmm. But, you know, another really good source for just learning what people were thinking and talking about in the time period is to check out historical newspapers. And there actually is a really cool database that's free to access online called nyshistoricnewspapers.org. And I'll put that link in our show notes as well. But it's newspapers from all over New York State, including New York City, and millions upon millions upon millions of pages that you can just look up what they're talking about with the dogs in New York City. You can kind of practice being a historian and going to looking at what we call primary sources, Mm -hmm. sources from the time period. So a primary source is like a firsthand account, like an original document from an era. So that'd be like newspapers, letters, speeches, diary entries, things like that. Secondary sources, that's like a historian writing about these eras. I don't know what a podcast is, a tertiary source maybe. But yeah, if you want to get to know these eras, looking at newspapers from the time period is another great way to do that. As little as you should go read about people killing dogs. <laughs> Can I say something about Taming Manhattan, though? Yes. The the book by Catherine McNair? Of course. Okay, so we know Catherine McNair. She was your advisor in grad school. She was, yes. And she was on my committee as well for my MA thesis. So I got a copy of Taming Manhattan when I was in grad school, and I got it when I was kind of in the revision process for writing my master's thesis. And I read the first five pages, and I had to put it down because it was so good And it was making me really discouraged about my own writing. (laughs) I was like, this is so much better than I can write. And I was just getting like bummed out that I couldn't write that well. And I'm like, I'll read this later, but I can't read this right now because it's so good. (laughs) And then after I was done with my thesis, I then went and read it and it's excellent. It's a great, great book. But I actually had to avoid it because it was it was so good. <laughs> okay. And now imagine handing your papers, your drafts, your rough, 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 rough drafts to the same person who wrote that <laughs> book. Oh, I never thought about that. You did have to do that, didn't you? <laughs> but hey, it made my thesis turn out much better because of it. Yeah. So I had uh, Dr. Johnson editing my thesis, uh, who was uh, who was awesome. Like he made it so much better than it would have been without him. So there there are some really good professors at PSU. Yeah, definitely. Okay, next question. In early urbanization, you discuss polluted waters, piggeries, swill milk, and parks, among other things. There's a lot to unpack there. The relationship of urban areas with the health and the environment continues to be a hot topic today. How did the evolution of this relationship and its effect on public policy in New York City affect other areas? Did what was going on in these areas impact similar issues in Chicago, for example? Okay, so those are wonderful questions, and there's there's a lot going on there that I don't think we have time to talk about now. But that's like six different questions. <laughs> I, I I know, but and it's wonderful. There's, and I I'm so happy that yeah. you're asking these questions. So continue asking these questions. Absolutely. 
I will say that New York City was not the first place to experience the challenges of urbanization in the world, but it was among the first to do so in America. And it grew. And the big part about it is it grew so rapidly during such a pivotal period of American history that it had to face questions like what to do with the sewage? How do we fight fires and disease? How how do we feed people? And so on. Other cities surely took notes on how New Yorkers defined public and private spaces and who managed them and who had access to certain resources. But then, of course, they had to adapt policies and procedures to their own environments because U.S. is huge and the environment, it, it's so varied across the, the landscape. But what I recommend doing is checking out other environmental histories focused on America's early urbanization, like William Cronin's Nature's Metropolis, which features Chicago, or Michael Rawson's Eden on the Charles, which talks about early Boston. And I mean, there are other sources innumerable. If you just pick your city and dig, there are so many avenues you can take. But very, very good questions. And thank you for asking them. Yeah, I'll I'll shed a little bit there. This is really your area of expertise. But I know other cities face similar challenges just a little bit later. So like New York is kind of at the forefront because they're growing so quickly in the antebellum era and they continue to grow. And then cities like Chicago after the Civil War and kind of in the Gilded Age, kind of leading up into the 20th century, that city is growing significantly and it's then it then it's facing its own challenges of urban growth and fires and things like that sewage so new york's just kind of it's so fascinating because it's an early case study so it's in a way it's unique because it's happening so soon but then all other cities are facing similar challenges later on on chicago i would also endorse nature's metropolis by william cronin um that's an excellent book it's really fun we also use cronin uh, for our our second episode on Native Americans and colonists in nature, all the way back in season one, he was writing on kind of the colonial environment, specifically in New England. And so Cronin's work has kind of been influencing us for a while. So I would I would also endorse what he's written. He's a he's a good author. Yep, and you get to see the failures. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, New York's in in New York City's attempts to modernize, attempts to control their environment. So it's definitely a city that's spotlighted for the interaction between people and their environment in American cities. Okay, we have one last question. Uh, this is another one from me, and that is, what's next? What are, what are we doing now? We're working on volume three. That's right, folks. There's a volume three. That's right. And <laughs> and we have begun research on that volume, and we're super duper excited about it. We're taking American history remix into the latter uh, part of the 19th century up into the about, uh, give or take, World War II era. Yeah. And we've got several different ideas rolling out. We kind of have volume three and four kind of mapped out now. We took some time after volume two to kind of figure out exactly. We had we had some ideas. There have been episodes we've known we were going to do the entire time. But as the project's grown and evolved and all of that, we've kind of found different ways to, uh, or different subjects we want to make sure we cover. And so, yeah, volume three will go up until kind of World War II, and then volume four will be World War II to the present. 
How many episodes are in volume three? Is it seven? Is that what we're doing? I think it's seven. Yeah. I think it's seven. Yeah. Unless we keep writing and it just turns into more. That's what happened with the twin revolutions. That was just going to be one episode. And then I kept writing. Actually, so I wrote that episode by hand. I literally wrote it by hand because it was during the pandemic and I was stuck in my house and it was really easy just to get distracted by the internet. So I would just leave my computer in the other room and I'd go write by hand. And I just kept writing and kept writing and kept writing. And then I went to go type up my notes and I'm like, wow, I really wrote a lot more than I needed to. And it turned into two episodes. So hopefully that doesn't happen again because that turned into a lot more work for us. <laughs> that is a lot of work. Yeah. But as planned, volume three will be seven episodes. And yeah, we both will will have episodes on what each of us wrote on for our master's theses. Yes. So kind of some of our own original research will kind of be playing in here. And so it's a super fun era. The Gilded Age, Reconstruction, the Gilded Age, Progressive Era, Great Depression, World War II. Like there's a lot of really fun subjects. World War One. World War One. Yeah. After all of that, after spending <laughs> so much time in the uh, antebellum era, I love the antebellum era, but I'm, I'm ready to move on and start reading some different sources on different different time periods. So I'm excited. Yep. Me too. And I hope you guys are also, and that you'll join us and listen to our episodes as they are released. Hopefully it doesn't take two years to release them. But again, there's that shout out to anybody who (laughs) would be willing to help us along. Not saying you're guaranteed a spot on the team, but uh, we'll talk to you. Yeah, well, (laughs) if anyone wants to help out, we will hear your ideas. Help. And hopefully it won't take another two years. But we're committed. It's happening. If you don't hear from us for a while, it's because we're working. It's not because we've given up. This like this, this is happening. Yeah. And if you have any more questions as you're listening to either volume one or two, uh, you can email us at AmericanHistoryRemix at gmail.com. That's right. You can also visit our website at www.americanhistoryremix.com. And there are plenty of sources there and a couple extra uh, additives. And keep checking our social media because we will be releasing posts along the way. We want to stay engaged with you guys. So talk to us. Let us know what you think. That's true. We reply to our emails. We've talked to our listeners before. That's how we met Lauren, who's doing the curriculum work for us. So yeah, reach out. I think that's everything. Do we miss anything? I don't think so. All right. Thank you, everybody. Talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.